Welcome to your Making It Worse. We're here, we're queer, who cares? I'm Elliot Glazer. And I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott. Textual healing. So guys, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and he is the head of, I don't know if he's the head, but he's on Trump's sort of coronavirus White House task. He's the one you see at all the press conferences. The, the, the cute little Italian guy on yeah. the yeah. White House press conference. He's hosting SNL this week, right? I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> but he did joke that he wanted Brad Pitt to pay play him in the TV movie no, really? virus, which I, I think should happen. Um, but he compared the racial disparities of those impacted by the coronavirus in the U.S. with the HIV AIDS epidemic, which he and um, the other doctor on the task force both have a long history of. Yeah, I, re- I remember right. Dr. Fauci from How to Survive a Plague. Yeah. He oh, was, this bitch bragging. He was, he was like a handsome little guy. He was, yeah. A little straight guy out there just sort of being mm-hmm. like, we must save the gays. Yeah, yeah. He was I, at the uh, forefront. Yeah. But shocking, I, shocking that he would be affiliated at any level with a Republican administration. But yes, continue. Go ahead. Well, no, it's not. He's not affiliated. It's interesting because no, I'm he kidding. is I'm kidding he's nonpartisan. And well, but people should know this. He's not like appointed by Trump. He is uh, his, right. his National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He leads that. It's a nonpartisan institute that is right. not relegated by presidential appointments. So he's there because this is his job, not because right. Trump wanted him there. Because he's good at it, right. Exactly. Which is, I want to give people trust in what he's doing, not that he's a Trump appointee. Right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, so Fauci said at a recent White House press conference that I couldn't help sitting there reflecting about sometimes when you're in the middle of a crisis, like we are now with the coronavirus, it really does ultimately shine a very bright light on some of the real weaknesses within society and sort of the disparities within mm. society. Um, and he went on to talk about his work within the gay community on the AIDS epidemic and the bravery the gay community showed and said that here again with this crisis, it's how it's a shining bright light on how unacceptable that it is. Because yet again, when you have a situation like the coronavirus, the African American community are suffering disproportionately. And it's true. And it's, it's, Really, I mean, in St. Louis, just the other day, they said all of the reported deaths in St. Louis were of African Americans, mm-hmm. which is like insane to me, but it also makes total sense because we live in a country with insane amount of systemic racism and disparities mm-hmm. within people who have health coverage. And oftentimes, African Americans are on the front lines of the quote unquote essential workers, meaning people who work right. in retail centers, people, nurses, et cetera, that a lot of these people are people of color. So of course- Is he, uh, is he like connecting you know, African-American people to gay people in the 80s? Well, he's connecting that oftentimes minorities are the first ones hit by any sort of pandemic, for example. Anyone who is struggling in society in some way, either socioeconomically or racially or what have you, it oftentimes is minorities. I do think it's important to note that like, Racism has been going on for a very, very long time in this country. It is, um, you could say, the bedrock of this country with slavery being in the Constitution. Uh, And homophobia has been more subtle, and gay people and queer people in general have been able to slide within different socioeconomic brackets. So I would say that African Americans and people of color in general have probably suffered a bit more when it comes to crises like this. Um, But it is a really interesting 
comparison because in the 1980s, the government was very slow to respond to the impact it was having on a minority group, the AIDS epidemic. And you could say now, I mean, I don't want to give credit to the Trump's government, but the government is responding fairly quickly to what's happening in the African-American community and people of color in general within the coronavirus. I mean, there's, we're talking about it a lot sooner. Yeah, which I think is a really good thing. I think it's also interesting to consider, you know, putting race aside just for a second. It's interesting to consider how, you know, the world has, you know, largely rallied around doing what we can, preventative measures to keep, obviously, coronavirus from spreading exponentially. But think about how different, different all of our responses would be if coronavirus was truly killing 2% of anyone who got it. You know, as a relatively healthy 30 something sitting in my apartment, I, you know, I consistently look at the numbers and I see that, you know, while some healthy people my age have died, the statistics are still very much against it. And I mean, you know, like the, the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, very famously killed tons of people in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, it was, and it was primarily children and young adults. Children as well. Yeah, yeah, children and young adults. So, I mean, it's it's just interesting to think about how different our reactions would be to any pandemic if, you know, the dynamics were different. But I think it's great that we're responding appropriately and quickly to finding out that this disease does not target people of color any differently, obviously. But the way our system is set up, um, you know, it, it's having a disproportionate impact on, you know, African-Americans primarily in well, big yeah. cities. You the sent un- that article yesterday that was really interesting, at least about California, about how, like, white people were pretty much far and away the most affected um, victims of corona. Yeah, so, so one in, of Cal- the f- in California. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I was going to say that, you know, one of the exceptions, you know, we've seen this, you know, disparate responses in uh, within race uh, from coronavirus, but California from the statistics they've released thus far is is one exception where mm-hmm. in fact in this state uh, white people have disproportionately died in larger numbers and that the rest of the deaths and the rest of the people who've been infected, not just in the state, but also in Los Angeles County have been more largely in line with the racial breakdown. Is there a reason for that? Um, You know, just very liberal, Elliot, very liberal, very progressive Uh, state. I mean, I was looking looking into the numbers a little bit and they, they, in the article and also in the government's sort of press release, they stress that like, don't put a lot on these numbers only because yeah. right. very early and there's a lot right. we don't know because as people are getting tested, you know, we're getting more of an insight into why things are the way they are right now. And one of the reasons in California why numbers for people of color might not be as high as they are in other areas is because those people aren't getting tested. Those people aren't getting, you know, white people have the often because of the way our system is set up. Unfortunately, it is a very, I'll say it, racist and ignorant system in many ways. And because white people, by and large, have a more of a freedom to go to the doctor, more of a freedom to access to healthcare and access to tests, they're getting tested first. And because of that, you know, those numbers can, can be murky, whereas people of color don't necessarily feel comfortable or feel like they have the, the finances to necessarily go to the doctor all those times. So, that might be one of the reasons why California numbers are the way that they are, but who knows? We don't, we don't know the full Mm -hmm. scope of it yet, but I do think it's really important that when we talk about the system we have, it's important to recognize that we have a system that is set up to work against 
minorities, particularly yeah. people of color. Especially if you, I mean, in, in like in 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 terms of what uh, Fauci was saying, it like it does feel eerily similar to AIDS in that way, or HIV, the way that it it affected a minority and just seeped in. It was so insidious. Yeah, I mean it. I, yeah, I, I, I still think part of me is I, I struggle a little bit with the comparison. I think it's a right comparison. I see it, but I also it makes me feel uncomfortable because I know the vast disparity among oh, yeah, totally. people it's of not color. Apples to apples. It's not apples to apples in any comparison whatsoever mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. of sort of the, the personal liberties and white privilege that many queer people have in terms of healthcare and stuff. But you're right. I mean, the gay community, gay men particularly, were dramatically impacted by the virus. And we saw this sort of spread within a community. And I think now it's great that that the response we're recognizing early and we're not just sort of disregarding the information coming that African-Americans are dying. But I do find, I have noticed that I posted something on Instagram the other day, something about the Trump administration getting information about, um, about the virus in January, January 30th. And Mm -hmm. even as late of February 12th or something, they were warned, like, you need to shut things down now. Like we need to start the process now. And it took them a month to even Mm -hmm. start the process, which could have saved potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. um, If we Mm -hmm. get to that point. And people have responded to me saying, well, first off, there's a lot we don't know about how the Trump responded, which there is a lot we know because we were watching it in real time. He was at press or campaign rallies in January and February talking about how this was going to go away in April because of the warm weather. And then on top of that, people are saying that, well, it mostly affects old people. So like, even though it's bad, it still only affects old people. And it's like, well, old people still matter. Like they still still have worth. They still matter in our society. Like someone's grandmother or grandfather who died, I'm sure that they didn't want them to die of this. It's a very bizarre primal, even like Glenn Beck said, he's like, he said something like to the, to the extent of willing to, like, yeah, like to risk his own life for the sake of the economy. <laughs> yes, risk his yeah. own life for the sake of the economy, and also had the same sentiment about like old people not really mattering because they're you know basically close to death anyway. Which and is it's insane. Like, it's insane. I mean, look, I don't think there's. I mean, there will obviously come a point where we all have to, you know, go. We have to return to. We all can't sit in our apartments for eighteen months, so there will come a point where we have a dialogue about what level of risk is inherently acceptable to continue with the life that we have previously known to be normal life. And so I think it's my suspicion that, you know, within three months we'll be having that discussion, but the discussion isn't about, well, let's just get this out of the way. And if the people who die will just die, it's like, how do we protect the people that need the most protection while perhaps people who have gotten the disease can go back to work. People who are lower risks can go back to work with masks, blah, 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 you know, et cetera. Um, But you know, it's the other, the, the, I guess I'm, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but I am disheartened to see how political the response uh, in the public sphere has been. I, I think at the end of the day, I think, uh, I 
think Democrats, Republicans, and independents are all concerned uh, about the disease, and polls bear that out. But the response that you see from some elected officials has been shockingly yeah. uh, partisan, which I think is a, a bummer. And but by the way, lots of Republicans and lots of Democrats have not made this political in the least. Sure. And that really should be emphasized. But there have been a few, a few Republicans, and obviously like Matt Trump Gates. administration have. Yeah. Yes, any, any number of a handful of you know Republican governors. But one yeah. thing I did yeah. want to say, and we can probably end on this if we want, but like you know, our listeners by and large are mainly women and gay men, and um, and you know, oftentimes like how look, dare you? I'm just I don't want to generalize, but I'm just saying that. If you have health care, if you have health insurance, a lot of times, you know, if we get sick, especially during a pandemic, people will want to go to the emergency room or go somewhere really quickly and get a response. But if you have the privilege, it is a privilege to be able to access your primary care physician or get an appointment with your medical doctor. Don't free, don't screw up the emergency rooms. Like people, minorities and people who are on the lower ends of the socioeconomic bracket need the emergency room. They, that's their only access to healthcare oftentimes. And a lot of times they're not getting it because people of privilege are like, I have a sore throat. I need to go to the emergency room. And then they get turned away, but you just wasted a half an hour of a nurse's time yeah. telling you to go home. So yeah. stay yeah. home, call my your friend, doctor. My friend had a, um, she has kidney stones, mm-hmm. and she was having a real tough oh, time. So with one do of I, them. bitch. Yeah, I know. I'm aware. I'm aware. But she had to go. <laughs> she had to go to the ER, and she was like, "I have never been in and out of the ER so fast. Mm. They were oh, empty. Wow. They were so attentive. It was that's cool. someone who needs to go to the ER. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah obviously. She was like, right. she was glad to see that it wasn't packed with people there for just not not no reason but you know yeah. unnecessarily they were people were listening yeah. to the directions which i think was mm-hmm. really uplifting to her that's great yeah, yeah. That's alan great. alan you prefaced by saying maybe we could end on that tidbit and i want i just want you to know that i i tell you when we end <laughs> segment and sure, Brad. Uh, with sure. with that said i sure. think it's an appropriate time to end, end the segment sure. oh should i end now no no you want me to end now 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 okay i'll end, I'll end now not even joking. Well, we're here with Dr. Eric Servini. Dr. Eric is in the house. <laughs> Can we call you Dr. Hello. Eric? Is that... Please don't. Oh, my God. No, <laughs> That's Dr. Eric. Um, this is Eric. Is <laughs> Eric is... Um, well, basically, I mean, you're, you're a writer, but I will say your full title. You're director of the Harvard Gender and Sexuality Caucus. You're on the board of advisors for the Mattachine Society of D.C., um, and you're the author of The Deviance War, The Homosexual Versus the United States of America, which is not out yet, right? Not yet. Forthcoming. Oh, my God. What a bio. Yeah. Someone's showing off. <laughs> and I should say, no, <laughs> in a corner of the Zoom. Uh, yeah, no, I'm a director, so not the director, I should say. Mm-hmm. So one of, one of them, there's a lot of us. And, so a lot of titles. Uh, he went to Harvard. I mean... <laughs> Elliot is a sucker for Ivy Leagues. He's oh so for you are. You care no. about Ivy Leagues. Well, yeah. I care about public Ivies, i.e. the University of Michigan, quite frankly. But uh, but that's besides the point. Yeah. So let, so Eric is an expert on all these great yeah, things. So, so what's the so I guess before we even dive into like, you know, the subjects, what, what would how would you describe what the book is about? And what is it called? 
<laughs> it's called the Deviance War, the Homosexual versus the United States of America. It comes out in June, June 2nd, and it's about uh, the decade before Stonewall. So a lot of people think gay rights uh, started, or the fight for it started at Stonewall, and the book really starts uh, 20 years beforehand, uh, mm-hmm. and with a focus on, on the 60s and looking especially at Washington, D.C., uh, and what the federal government was doing uh, in the same time you know, Joseph McCarthy was going after the communists uh, at an equal or even higher rate. They were going after the gays and purging mm-hmm. them from their jobs. And that was kind of the catalyst that started the pre-Stonewall uh, gay rights movement. And what, like, what yeah. brought you into, like, gen- like, like queer studies? and Because um, I, I was going to say gender studies, but it seems more like you're in the area of, like, of queer studies and queer history. Yeah, and, and there, there's a lot of overlap, but uh, I, I started studying, you know, political science and then realized that there was a lot more numbers than I thought there was a lot more scientific <laughs> than I yeah. thought than mm-hmm. I thought it would be and uh, stumbled on a class when I was an undergrad uh, about uh, urban history and studying cities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. realized from, you know, history is really just telling stories. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's a bad reputation, sometimes uh, well-earned, that it can be boring and dry and dense. Uh, but I think the reason I started studying it was the, the, just the heroism that, and just the incredible stories of some of these activists uh, who, you know, were, their lives were ruined and they were living in poverty mm-hmm. because the government found out they were gay. And then they were the ones to actually fight back and started uh, the, the movement that we can now all benefit from. There really is something about, I mean, I, I'm also a history major, unlike these two. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, and there is something about history that like, it kind of pisses me off in modern day terms because a lot of people seem to forget that like precedent does help us Mm -hmm. understand what we're dealing with now. And if you look back on how things were, I mean, a lot of times like, you know, like right now during the coronavirus, we talk about the mm-hmm. Spanish flu and we think like that was 1918. How does that relate to how we work in our lives right now? But in reality, like the things the government did, in fact, the presidential election of 1920 was directly influenced by the Spanish flu totally. and, and how Republicans took back control of the White House. I don't know if so you guys have like, ever heard this phrase, but some say that history repeats itself. Interesting. Let me look that up on Wikipedia. What does that mean? Let me just look that up right quick. Doctor, have you heard that phrase? (laughs) I have. I have. God forbid. (laughs) So, like, for instance, Eric, is there, like, one particular, you know, forefather or an individual in gay rights, even predating, obviously, Stonewall, that you really point to as, like, this person was really breaking out, Mm. you know, and they haven't made the textbooks yet, but, like, they were, were, you know, way ahead of their time. hero, maybe. There sure. is, and and he's kind of the central figure of the book. And I'll tell you how I how I discovered it. his name's Doctor Frank mm. Kameny. He was actually an astrophysicist, um, mm-hmm. so a lot. He was actually um, really really smart yeah. <laughs> compared to other doctors out there. No, uh, he so he had a PhD from Harvard. He was working as an astrophysicist for the government. And, you know, gets his PhD after, you know, 15 years of higher education, goes to an astronomy conference in San Francisco in 1956. And mm-hmm. I get probably has a few drinks, you know, celebrating. It's the height of the space race. You know, Sputnik is about to go up uh, within months. And mm-hmm. he could not have chosen a better field, right, to be mm-hmm. an astrophysicist. Yeah at the height of the, the very beginning of the space race. And, you know, he's at this conference in San Francisco and later that night, 
Uh, he goes to a public restroom because before Grinder, there were public mm-hmm. restrooms. Right. And uh, there, you know, he is seen with another man at a urinal. And there are two police officers hiding in the ceiling, looking down at him and the other man. Uh, through a ventilation grill in the That's ceiling. That's kind of hot. It's a little hot. Yeah. A little it's hot. a little, little I hot mean, for Alan. Alan uh-huh. has a semi. Yep. <sighs> all right. It depends. Yeah. It's hot for like all involved until, you know, you're in jail and mm-hmm. you know. yeah, of course, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, no judgment. If that's your fantasy, no right, judgment. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, unfortunately uh, it did not have a very happy ending. Um, at least then. Uh, and he, you know, uh, the government found out mm-hmm. that, he, that this had happened uh, because that's one of their jobs. You know, the civil service commission at the time would investigate you. And right. until, you know, in some parts of the, the government, like the CIA or the FBI, you know, if they found out you were gay or certainly closeted, um, then you could not work there. Yeah. And so in 1957 went by the time they found out uh, they immediately kicked him out. But the real issue is if you're an astrophysicist and it's the space race and you want to go work for Lockheed or for Boeing or something, you have to get a security clearance. So mm-hmm, not right. only could he not work for the government, he couldn't work for anything in his yeah. field. Yeah. Uh, so he ended up being the first to go to the Supreme court um, for a, uh, 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 anti-discrimination case, uh, mm. against the U S federal government. And when that failed, he started essentially the first gay rights lobby in the entire country in Washington oh, wow. called the Mattachine society of mm. Washington. Um, and there had been a Mattachine society actually here in LA. It started in, uh, in Silver Lake. I took those uh, stairs the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of stairs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was a uh, three guys in, in 1953 communists uh, started the Mattachine society. And then it kind of, it, it became um, kind of more conservative Yeah, over time by, by, you know, 1957 or the sixties, it, you know, had turned from let's create revolution into uh, let's assimilate and you know donate well, that, blood or like I mean, what that was that was really pre-stonewall i mean correct me if i'm wrong but that was really sort of the 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 line in the middle of the community and that like there were people who really wanted a revolution and to fight back and to really be radical and then there was another part of sort of queer society that wanted to protect themselves in a way and sort of maintain some normalcy so that they could have a job or whatever what, they could what, do whatever what they wanted it, what made it conservative conservative relative to you know uh let's uh all rise up and like homosexual culture fuck the system yeah right um and so relatively conservative and there's you know scholars that say actually they did amazing things like they were still performing a great public service of you know if you got caught in a restroom Mm -hmm. um then you could call the mattachine no matter when it was and or get it down Um, and so that was in, in its own way, yeah. you know, uh, we shouldn't discount that but yeah. compared to, you know, if the, the idea of like holding a picket sign right. and going and demonstrating or, or something, just been, you know, exactly. one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, and one of the things that always sort of strikes me is, uh, the whitewashing of LGBTQ history and sort of how we highlight, you know, these people who had the means to be able to bring a case to the Supreme court or who had exactly. the means to be able to protest. But then I think of people like, well, I mean, Brian Rustin is probably the most mm. classic example of someone who was out there living a very openly gay 
life and working with Martin Luther King in the early 1950s, in the 40s and 1950s. I mean, he started working with King in the 50s, but like he was getting arrested for doing exactly what you're saying, the whole, the bathroom thing or in the back of the car. And yet he still went on to plan the March on Washington in 1963, right? Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And he became... And even though he wasn't doing gay rights, he was living and Martin Luther King was standing by him. And, and Bayard Rustin, I mean, every year on his like birthday or whatever, I I post uh, or black history month, I post, he's like the person I post for black Mm -hmm. history month. And it's like, I'm amazed at particularly white gays that who don't know who the hell he is. And it's because our history, people who tell our history aren't telling their stories. So like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing about that? Well, I think you're so right about people who the people who could afford to go to the Supreme Court, right, mm-hmm. or who could afford to fight back, at least in these very, very early days, were the ones, you know, who, who literally could afford to, you know, they had the money, they had the resources, the white uh, people, the, the white, white people, right, yeah. and the white male uh, yeah. uh, gays, right? Cis yeah. men. Mm-hmm. And so, but then if you do the extra work and that was something that I, I love doing because it's almost like, that's what I love about history is, you know, when you first look at, you know, uh, uh, a timeline and you see, oh, okay. You know, the very first gay rights demonstration was like in 1964. You're like, okay, well that <clears throat> sure that's earlier than I thought, but then you realize, okay, why 1964? Let's take it back a little bit further. Mm-hmm. As you said, what happened in 1963, just months earlier, it was the March on Washington organized by a black openly gay man who was still very, I mean, there were, he went through a lot within the, the uh, African-American civil rights movement, but yeah, you're right. I mean, everyone knew uh, Strom Thurmond got up a few yeah. days before the March on the Senate floor and called him a sexual pervert in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And, but that was kind of a blessing in disguise because if you have someone that everyone hates calling mm-hmm. one of your men a sexual pervert, mm-hmm. then, you know, no one's going to say, oh yeah, we're on Strom Thurmond's side. Yeah. You know, gonna, yeah, yeah. Rally behind you. So in a way, you know, he, he was kind of shielded from that. But what happened at that 1963 March, there was a group of Manichean Society of Washington, mm-hmm. homosexuals there as a delegation marching on behalf of uh, 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 you know, racial equality. And so you have these connections between the two movements that I think we as historians have an obligation to trace back mm-hmm. because then it allows us to say, you know, now that we have made it this far, right. Who do we now owe, right. Yeah. Who, who do we owe our own success and our own privilege to who may have been left behind? Because, Guess what? Bayard Rustin couldn't afford to be a part of both of those movements, right? Mm-hmm. It would have ruined him, right? Yeah. And he was already treading a very uh, thin line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you look at the FBI documents that show, you know, they had infiltrated uh, yeah. the gay rights movement, also the homophile movement, as it was called. And you start to see the tips immediately as soon as Bayard Rustin announces uh, the 63 mar- March, you see these little whispers within the, the homophile movement of people saying, oh, we want to march too. We want to do this too, mm-hmm. right? So there's this that direct thread yeah. um, that I think is just so important. Yeah. So that, that's interesting. So let me also ask you, because I know you host a podcast about... Um, LGBTQIA issues. Mm-hmm. What are like, let's talk about maybe some deep cut, um, uh, things you've talked about. And I know, uh, I know one of them was Alexander Hamilton, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, also, obviously, very famously, and although not everyone knows this, there was one president who people have rumored to have been gay for a long time, but we don't obviously know for sure because some of his behavior back then fits some of the stereotypes that we have of gay people now, et cetera. So what's right. the Hamilton? I've never heard of the Hamilton one, though. What's that? What's the Alexander Hamilton? He has a musical after him. Of course he's gay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So he, if there, yeah, there is like a tiny little reference to it in the musical um, where this last guy, this guy with the last name of Lawrence, uh, John Lawrence, I think was his name. He was working under uh, uh, George Washington and they, when, when uh, Hamilton was in his early twenties, they got to know each other um, and become essentially, you know, the best of friends. And Mm -hmm. in the musical, it, it seems like they're brothers almost, right? Mm-hmm. That's what, mm-hmm. what, uh, 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 manuel chose to, to portray them as, yeah. and, you know, I think, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but right. then you look at some of the letters and you see it was, the language was a lot more than just, um, brother. I want to hold you to my bosom. It's always, it's such a, it's such a tough thing because I've heard obviously Rutherford B. Hayes is the, uh, is the rumored uh, gay president. Or is it Buchanan? Uh, Buchanan, Buchanan, sorry, Buchanan. 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 Yeah. My mistake. Yeah. Yeah. All those, all those dud presidents always get mixed <laughs> up, but I, I, it's like, you always hear about these things. And obviously we know statistically speaking, they're obvious. We don't think, you know, homosexuality is a modern phenomenon. We know it's existed for millennia. So, mm. but it's, it's funny. Cause like they go back in time and they read the diaries of these, of these men or women that they suspect might've been gay. And the, the, it's like, yes, they use this terminology that now we code as, you know, rightfully so is probably a little gay, mm-hmm. but back then they're like, yeah, they always talked about holding their brother to their bosom or something. And like, <laughs> what does that really <laughs> like? What, like, yeah, no, for sure. If you read like <laughs> diaries from the 1800s, they're very yeah. poetic. They're very emo- uh, emotive, and, and they have yeah. different ways of representing intimacy than we do now. I, oh, I, I don't think that's a crazy. I mean, I think. I mean, to put it sort of in a question, I think one of the things that going off what Brent said is that we as gay people often have a tendency to want to rewrite history to make it more gay. Always. And Mm. so we want to find examples that benefit an argument we want to make because we want someone on our side or we want to find the gay people in history and there aren't enough out examples. So we want to try to read into it a little bit. Do you think that's what's happening or do you think there's actual evidence that Alexander Hamilton, Buchanan, or even the the most famous one I think is is Lincoln. Lincoln Lincoln Um, was a drag queen. Um, <laughs> yep. Oh. Yep. A lot no, of them. No, I've, I've heard that Benjamin Franklin had a butt plug. Oh my I've heard god! That. Oh wow! That when he died, they found a butt plug in his in his britches drawer. Fascinating. Drawer britches. So, can you talk about the butt plug, Doctor Harris? <laughs> I always like to say, you know, there's no evidence he wasn't. <laughs> right. 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 And right. I think you know that is something that historians have to weigh it. It's made even more difficult because of the language at the time, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, you had these bosom friends as there's a scholar um, named Thomas Belsersky. We had him on who literally wrote the book on Buchanan uh, and whether or not he had one of those uh, relationships that transcended just being bosom friends and being more mm-hmm. right. uh, uh, romantic. And then on top of that, like those norms of just same sex relations, you also have the issue of, you know, there wasn't the word homosexual, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, there was right. Bottomite, maybe deviant, um, but there was never, you know, this idea, at least widespread in the media and in public consciousness of there being this category of a certain 
identity. Mm -hmm. And so that's why as the historian, we have to be really careful in saying, okay, was James Buchanan gay? Eh, You have to be careful, but you know, you can say, well, this specific relationship may have been romantic, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I like to play the game of, you know, let's imagine if we had the ability to bring him to current day, how sure. might he identify? Who well, knows? Uh, right? also, uh, uh, well, let me also ask a question then. So if we are, if one, if, you know, an ethnographer or whatever wanted to study actual gay people from the 1800s, like what did their diaries sound like? Someone who was, you know, I, I imagine it must, must, must have been difficult to find. If it does exist, I assume obviously it existed. There were some people who lived openly gay. What did their diaries sound like? What did they, what kind of rhetoric did they use then? Oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually, oh, I forgot the name of the, of the exact title of the book, but there's one uh, in, uh, I, I believe it's two women who live together mm. in Vermont. And I want to say it's like late 18th century. And they essentially had a marriage, right? And they yeah. treated each other and spoke just as they would, you know, if a, yeah. a modern day marriage. And, you know, the, the book is a lot about how they were able to make that seem normal because they were also in business together, right? They were, I think mm. they were like seamstresses. And mm. so, you know, there was like, oh, well, in that case, it's okay. They're living together and sharing a bed. And like, mm-hmm. you know, they talk to each other very intimately and things like that. So I think there's, this plausible deniability that allowed, mm-hmm. you know, um, like for example, Lincoln, he shared a bed for years right. uh, with another guy in very, very small beds. Right. Uh, he was very but wasn't, that, wasn't that like, I mean, I remember cause I I'm from Missouri right next door to yeah. Illinois. So Lincoln is sort of our <laughs> dude. Um, and I, I remember like being obsessed with that in high school and like going into detail about trying to understand, basically trying to like, prove all my gay friends wrong that Lincoln wasn't gay because I think it's ridiculous. But I read some into it and for the really the only leading person who was talking about it was Gore Vidal, who he was a lying yeah. piece of shit half the time. Um, <laughs> and then on top of that, like Lincoln was notoriously poor until he became president. He did mm. not make much money until he right, became president. Right. So half the time he was like living in these small quarters because he was, he was living away from his family at the time, if I am correct, when he exactly. was sharing the bed with somebody else. So like, was it not just trying to save a buck? <laughs> it, so usually it is. And I think that's why most historians, like unlike what, especially when you're comparing Buchanan and Lincoln, you know, Lincoln had four kids, right? Yeah. He actually mm-hmm. was married. Uh, Buchanan was a bachelor throughout his entire life. Um, and when it comes to sharing a bed, he, he did have enough money yeah. not to have to share, or at least oh, live with did he? Right. Buchanan, absolutely. Buchanan, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he chose right. to live with, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, his name was, uh, King, he actually ended up being vice president, and I don't want to give a spoiler away. But I'll, I'll, there, what the the uh, the uh, scholar I had on to discuss it, he actually concluded that it was less likely that we've had a 
uh, gay president and more likely that we've had um, a sexually deviant vice president. So, oh, um, you mean Dan, on, Quayle. On. Dan Quayle? Yeah, right. Dan yeah. Quayle. Yeah. Elliot, Elliot is googling pictures of James Buchanan right now and putting nipple <laughs> clamps on. I promise. You know, you know. Speaking, I love how you know. Just another question on this. Like, people are obsessed with the presidents that were gay or the vice presidents that were gay. But to me, like, the biggest gay icon, queer icon from the 20th century is Eleanor Roosevelt, and like, she yeah. seems to get yeah. passed over all the time in these totally. discussions of like queer icons. Totally. Totally. And, well, you know, I, I think that's... I mean, yeah. Sorry. Go on, Sorry, Eric. No, no, I was going to say, I think that's true of a lot of women in history. And I think, you know, especially because... Um, it's it's so when power is allocated to men uh and <laughs> throughout history from the very beginning and you see you know if you're trying to take down one of your enemies uh chances are you're going to go after the man mm-hmm. versus you know that man's wife right whether it's in you know 14th century france or earlier or now right you're not going to go after um, someone with not the maximum amount of power because there are other societal forces keeping that power away from them. And so who is going to be accused of sodomy? Well, it's going to be the guy. I mean, it's like, you know, during the Holocaust, like lesbians weren't even a part of women weren't even considered to be able to be a lesbian. So they didn't even, they weren't even thought of that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I have a sort of pivoting off of this, Dr. Eric, I have a personal question (laughs) for you. Please. Um, uh, so like one of the things that kind of always throws me is I remember once years ago, I saw my doctor, like my regular general practitioner on grinder. And I was like, ah! it, was just <laughs> yeah. like it was too much for me. You know what I mean? And I think there are positions in society where like, you know, doctors, teachers, you know, people, people who are sort of teaching us or like mm-hmm. whatever leaders, if you will, mm-hmm. um, seeing them in a normal sense, is kind of off-putting. And like, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I remember, like, you know, I see you as like a Harvard educated, like you're a smart dude, you're writing a book, you're doing a thing. Like, well, no, you're doing a thing. You're you're talking about serious shit and like, it's a (laughs) thing. So how do you differentiate sort of talking about this serious stuff and being an authority, quote unquote, on some of this sort of, you know, discussions that we need to have about history Mm. and also like being able to go to like a party and being like, look at my abs or whatever, (laughs) like on Instagram, like how do you, how do you separate the personal content from sort of the educational stuff you're putting out there? Yeah. Well, on a philosophical level, I think seeing a professor or someone on Grinder should be no worse than running into that same person at a grocery store, which I think is actually pretty awkward. So, yes. Yes. so I mean, given that, um, it has it's been interesting. It's been an interesting little uh, uh, balancing act because I think you know, especially in LA, it's not like Boston where there's 120 uh, universities concentrated in a single area. It's very much more about you know, uh, your appearances and your, your, um, who, you know, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the good part of that and part of the reason why I'm here is my number one priority is to get history into the hands and minds of as many people as possible. So I don't really care how I do that as long as I'm not losing, um, authority or I'm not losing, I don't know, respect of too many people, Mm -hmm. right? Like one of my videos just the other day, you know, I was talking about 
what was I talking about? Uh, uh, I think it was like Oscar Wilde or something. And, you know, I added kind of like a campy photo of like two, you know, porn stars like hugging or something because they were accused Mm -hmm. of sodomy. Right. So the question is, that's funny and it's campy. Mm -hmm. Is that going to get more people to like it and share it? Probably. uh, Because it's actually enjoyable and like entertaining to watch. And then, but then you have to weigh that against the people who say, oh, this is like inappropriate, you know? Yeah. And usually I've been trying to stay on the side of who gives a shit, you know, mm-hmm. like I, the people who are going to be offended by that um, are going to be offended by it no matter what. And if yeah. I have to choose between making uh, gay or queer people more comfortable with themselves and feeling more belonging through being campy or being a little provocative, I would always prefer that than getting their aunt and uncle in, you know, sure. Erica to, you know, I want to give them the, the, the power, um, and the, the, um, sense of belonging that then allows them to do that harder work of you know, sitting down and explaining things to their aunt and uncle. The one thing I want to I, like warn you of that mm-hmm. I immediately like. I remember a couple of years ago there was this one person on the internet. I don't know who it was, YouTube or something, but they were doing like a gay shirtless book club. It was like their whole their whole conceit was like we we talk, read and talk about books with our shirts off, and it was always only people who had a size thirty two waist and abs and shit <laughs> were always white, and they always talked right. about books that had the word that had lead gay male characters, and that was it. Right. So, all I'm saying is, please never, ever, ever do a history discussion with your shirt unless, <laughs> no. unless it's somehow appropriate to the discussion. We've had we've right. had like thoughty thought like insta thoughts or whatever on the show, and Max Emerson, and it's been a funny, interesting conversation because we're kind of all three of us are kind of like, what's going on? And then someone like like Max would did say on the show that he's using his body or whatever to get the real to save the world (laughs) but it's like but but it's then it always ends up being like well what are you what is the message that you're that you're actually getting out there at the cost of I think Max did a really good and I you know I've, I've come to like Max I think he did a really good job explaining sort of his particular situation in the world, which I think is very different from like yours, Dr. Eric, and that like, oh, you're oh, actually yeah, no, it's not, it's yeah, not you're like talking about history and education. So there's no comparison there. Although I'm sure you have just as many abs as him. And it's, it's, <laughs> uh-uh. it's like, it's one <laughs> of those, you call him and that's not true, <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those, like, you know, how do you balance? Yes. The need to get attention on the internet because part of attention, I mean, you know, we do comedy. Like we're all performers. Like I do drag, like attention is a part of what Mm. we do for a living. And by getting attention, if you sucker them in, then maybe you can teach them something or say something larger. And I I get that, but it's also like, where do you draw the line between Mm. gratuitous, not to be like sex negative or anything, because there's nothing wrong with being gratuitous, but like being gratuitous or like being legitimate and having something to say, Mm. you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Totally. And honest, like, I'll be completely honest. It's literally just a case by case evaluation where I say, okay, would this piss off uh, my agent, my editor, or anyone who might be the gatekeepers of whether or not even more people get access to, you know, my message. Right. And so, and they tend to be, you know, they're mostly gay. 
Um, but you know, not maybe a, a few years older than me. And so that's kind of like, that's the, the upper limit of, of what I For get. Sure. So I've had, to, I've had to remove stuff, you know, I've had FaceTime calls from my agent that are like, Eric, come on. And uh, so, yeah, I was going to uh, say maybe literary agents are a little different than <laughs> talent agents, but yeah, go ahead. Do you have like a healthy, like, like a reasonable um, amount of, critical thinking about like gay culture not in historical terms but like in the terms of the way the way we we see it unfold now on instagram and whatever like do you carry a sense of criticism about that i mean and i'm saying that from the perspective of a podcast called you're making it worse so you know where we stand (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um Honestly, like the, my, the reason I started the podcast and the podcast is called the deviance world. Um, because the book is the deviance war. The podcast is the deviance world because, you know, the past seven years I've been completely immersed in the story, right? About Frank Hamini fifties and sixties. What was the government doing? How were we fighting back? And, you know, I was living in Cambridge, England, which is a tiny little town, um, lots of cows. And I moved straight here, not, with the best connection to pop culture or even gay culture. So, you know, I'm the first to admit that my understanding of gay culture as it is now is pretty limited relative to the, you know, the anyone in in LA or in West Hollywood. Um, And so that's why I started the podcast is to go out and figure out like my very first episode was what is a circuit party? Right. Like I literally, I had no idea where it came from, what it is. I had seen pictures. I had been to like circuit party adjacent events, but nothing real. And so then, you know, learning and trying to figure out, okay, what are these things in gay culture that I don't really understand? And then trying to explain it by going backwards. And then suddenly you realize these threads uh, connect and, you know, it, it, it teaches me, but it also teaches other people. So other people might mm. benefit from understanding the past and I'm benefiting from understanding, mm. you know, what the hell is In going real on time, now. Yeah. <laughs> That's great because Buchanan was uh, notorious for his circuit parties. So uh-huh. the circle. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We had such a great convo with you. And um, where can people find you online? Um, so Instagram is probably the best bet. That's like the, uh, the central, uh, spot. So, uh, Instagram.com slash Eric Servini. <laughs> and the book comes out in June, June available everywhere. I'm assuming hoping available everywhere. I will say independent bookshops are really struggling right now. So if you know, you're interested in pre-ordering or anything like that, um, definitely check out, um, either bookshop.org or IndieBound. And you and I will meet up at our local bookshop, yes. Skylight. Sarah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks yeah, so thanks much for so having much. me. Thanks, Dr. Eric. <laughs> Don't ever call me that. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing. So for this segment, for And Another Thing this week, um, we have been talking about this uh, well, this has sort of been, a, I would say, even a, a relatively common theme over the last year and a half that we've been recording the podcast, that Elliot, as an adult, as well as when he was a child, uh, is disproportionately afraid of almost everything. So everything. almost anything that you could be afraid of, Elliot is insanely afraid of. And then lots of things that you, most normal people, would never think to even be afraid of, Elliot is quite afraid of them. So... Um, we decided to make a list of things uh, that Elliot is 
afraid of not a i'm not afraid of maybe, maybe as a now. kid you were afraid, afraid of, of movie theaters of <laughs> yeah. no no i was not afraid of movie theaters i was afraid of movie previews oh that's right like that's better like that's somehow better <laughs> so anyway so let's go through the list of things that elliot was mostly afraid of uh mostly as a kid but also sometimes as an adult uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I was afraid of the theme song from A Current Affair, uh, which I'm with you on that. I also ooh, found that terrible. That was terrifying. I learned uh, John Candy died on A Current Affair. That, oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, that's um, good to know. The Tums jingle, Tums, Tum 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 Tums. That's scary. What was scary about that? There's nothing scary about <laughs> no, that. I actually, weirdly enough, I I'm not kidding. I get it. I get it. I remember Why? that jingle because it sounds like bum 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 bum. It sounds like the end song. I just of remembered. Like a- like a PBS, like murder, like detective show or something. Which just remember, this just I literally can't, now I can't get help me remember that I was also terrified of Dragnet when it was on MTS, yes. uh, uh, Nick at Night. Yes. <laughs> and What's so scary music. about Dragnet? It's like, isn't Dragnet a comedy? Yes, but it's the same thing that Brent was just describing. This very foreboding, dun da dum, dum da dum. Yes. Like, wait, like wait, 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 wait. What is it? Because I, I can't even think of a piece of music that scares me. Like, what is it about the music? Because music is so dumb. I don't get, like, what's yeah, scary Alan, about you, it. Uh, music can really impact mood. You know that. And, like, I think as, an, as a kid, in particular one who is emotionally unhinged, like Elliot, I think as a kid <laughs> it would be easy to let music, like, kind of, you know, spiral in your head I guess. Head or I something. don't know. I mean, sure it can have an emotion, but I would never be afraid of it because what is music going to do to you? I don't know, I because think that, I was terrified of the Rhythm of rhythm is Gonna Get You by Gloria Estefan. What? Why? 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 Because it just, I guess it was very foreboding, and the music also, it just felt threatening to me. Same thing yeah. with the Beverly Hills Cop theme song. Dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. It would give me yeah. diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> were, there, were there non-musical things that scared you? Cause, oh, my God. <laughs> of course. I, I was terrified of, I, I wasn't afraid of flying, but when we would when we would land <laughs> i was aff- very much afraid of takeoff and landing not because yeah. of the not because of safety but because mm-hmm. feeling the push of air pressure used to scare the yeah. shit out of me and i mm. and after a day at the <laughs> or after flying when i would try to go to sleep at night i couldn't because i quote still felt it in my body <laughs> yeah. oh my god <laughs> I felt the waves in the water like undulating in my body and it scared me so much. Like were, were your parents good at like calming you down? Oh my god, very 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 good at it. Yeah. So they were like patient with this this side oh of my you, god, you were always afraid much. of everything. Oh, see, now if I was yeah. your parents, I definitely would be like, oh, what a hot for adoption. <laughs> I am over this. Can't we go to one fucking movie? Yeah. I was so sensitive, but I wasn't it wasn't that I was afraid of the movies. When I say I was afraid of movie pre- previews, what I meant is that I guess for some reason I thought they were louder and so mm-hmm. i would go outside of the movie theater plug my thing plug my ears and yeah. wait for somebody to tell me when they were over <laughs> i remember seeing a preview in uh, a preview before a movie this was the only time i remember seeing this about this the the um risk of choking on food mm-hmm. uh you know a lot of movie theater candy is small like tidbit sized and i it like really disturbed me for 
like years. I still think of this was probably, in fact, I remember it was, uh, it See, was the He-Man movie, which came out in like the nineties. I, I get still why think about that's that scary. That yeah. makes sense, Elliot. That, the, what Brent, that no, I'm Brent. That, yeah. That is right. like an obvious scary thing to be afraid of legitimately yeah, a right. movie. Now, when you say the movie preview, <laughs> it doesn't sound like you were actually scared of the movie preview. It sounds like you were more annoyed by the noise level of the movie preview and you wanted out of it before. Well, the that would, film that, start. that would make, sense but it, do- mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense because i was literally just like it's too loud it's too intense it's too it scares me everything scared me so much i think you yeah. use scared like the south uses like soda as or as like coke, coke as like coke is soda. Coke. <laughs> yeah like you just use scary as an all-encompassing <laughs> word to describe life i mean at least as a Alan, kid, like, i was scared all the time and had like nervous stomach diarrhea panic throwing yeah. up all the time from fear yeah uh, but Alan, like for instance, this was uh, one thing on Elliot's list that was also on my much, much shorter list was the show Unsolved Mysteries. Mm-hmm. I feel like every kid who was under the age of like 12 when Unsolved Mysteries was a thing was Besides creeped, Alan, not me. Was creeped the fuck <laughs> out by that song at the beginning of like that show. But I used that to makes literally sense. have to turn that off. But why? But that's music. Why does that no, make no, sense? No, no, it's not. It, well, because I, I don't assume the music is the thing that scares you from it. I assume the stories are the thing that scares you from it. Sure. The stories, yeah, but the also the music really contributed I mean, to that. The show. music I get I, that music element. I get because the stories are legitimately scary and nerve wracking. And so you associate the music yeah. with that, but like the Tums commercial, there's nothing scary about Tums. So I don't get why that music is <laughs> it's scary. Not, it's not Tums. Like, it's just Tums. It doesn't, like there's nothing scary about Tums, except Tums, that it could potentially, Tums, Tums. yeah, there's nothing scary about that. That. Unsolved Mysteries music, I get it. It's scary. It leads to no, scary things. I get Tom's, it. I'm, no. um, I'm I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I, I, maybe like a dog whistle. I don't know. Dog yeah. hears a high pitch and freaks out. I heard that music, Tums, Tum Tum, and I was, and I freaked um. out. <laughs> Same thing I, with, um, I, I also was terrified of, like, of the, of quote, the internet, meaning I remember very distinctly in, I think it was like fifth grade, there would be, we'd do like current affairs and it would be sort of like a newsletter kind of thing, or we would talk about current affairs and they would talk about and prognosticate, I think is the right word, the internet and how like in, you know, in 10 years, we'll be going to school through video phones. Yeah, I was right. petrified that I, <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to go to school anymore. Yeah, <laughs> Petrified. That is Straight it's, up petrified. It's so funny because it, it's. I've always been the same way too. Like, wait, what were you scared of, Brent? Well, let's see. My list was a little bit. I had a weird. I was terrified of blimps, mm. and I think blimps is an interesting one because blimps were always. There, I don't know exactly how low they are, but like, you know, when you see an airplane in the sky, it seems like the right size to you. You're mm-hmm. like, all right, that's a tiny, tiny plane because it's a long ways away. Mm-hmm. But blimps were always flying, but they were big as fuck. And, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're from, they're slow. They just yeah. linger. Yeah, and they linger. And if you're from Ann Arbor, Michigan, you're familiar with football games. And so every Saturday, there's almost always a blimp around. And so I remember being terrified of blimps. That like makes it sense. Set me off for the day. Unsolved mysteries. Uh, I know the Muppet Show had a thing where they had like a talking Barbie and Ken doll, and I 
lost my shit. Oh, no. I lost my shit. Like I couldn't watch the Muppets for like a year. And the finally, original Muppets show? Yeah, I think that, like some Muppets show that was on like in early nineties oh, uh, had like a ta- had like a segment. Yeah, I don't think it was the original. It was like a talk, yeah. like a segment. And I also was afraid of looking at the night sky because I was afraid that I would see an alien. <laughs> oh, see, I can, I can, I can take you. I can see your alien and raise raise you paranoia. Where I watched a TV show, uh, I, it was actually Inside Edition, and they were mm. doing a story about how this group of friends went camping for the weekend, and how they were yeah. um, um, uh, approached by aliens. Aliens landed, and I remember the visual of these aliens <laughs> like rubbing these nude women from behind, like Ooh, rubbing yeah. their backs, Ooh, and it yeah. literally sent me. It gave me. I, for the entire summer, I was going to a day camp that was in the woods, and oh I would have God. to leave early every wait, day. Wait, wait, wait. Wait. So we also, I'm going to add, I'll see your fear of aliens, and I'm going to add to Elliot's own fear because he went to day camp because he was too afraid for sleepaway camp. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I, I never did sleepaway camp. I, I never did camp. We couldn't afford it. I don't know how you guys were so rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In, in fifth grade, we did a sleepaway camp in fifth grade. We left for like the week and you're with, I was with all of my classmates. So like all of my best friends and I, I started mm-hmm. crying on Tuesday. Oh my I made God. it one day and I was crying every day until Friday when we went home. Oh my God. I was We're finally cool. okay on Friday. Camp Ohiesa. Uh, it's such a Michigan name. In Michigan, that was, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a it was a Michigan I, camp. You know, as a kid, I was not crazy. I wasn't a fearful kid at all. I wasn't anxious. I had a lot of anxiety, but I wasn't like a fearful kid. I was afraid of bridges. I remember that bridges, oh. like. Uh, going over a bridge I just uh, there was something about driving right off of a bridge or like and Mm. I think it has to do with like someone else controlling a car and thus Mm. me not having the control over saving my own you know what I mean like that I think Mm, that was my fear um I was afraid oddly of Sam Donaldson the yes, reporter. yes. The ABC reporter. Ooh. But I have a reason. Yes. I have. A, I, I, I can track a reason. His hair was too perfect. No, 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 no. It had nothing to do with his visual appearance, although that maybe had a little bit to do with it. I was such an insomniac as a kid. Like, I could never... I remember... I distinctly remember the time I became an insomniac. It was fourth grade, first day of fourth grade. And, uh, and I remember one night I was watching the Atlanta Olympics, you know, the bombing of the Atlanta Olympics. And I was, <laughs> watch, I was watching TV and the, the bombing happened and Sam Donaldson, like, came in and I had never seen Sam Donaldson before. Uh. <laughs> and it was like, and it happened like late at night. It happened like at midnight. And Sam Donaldson came into my bedroom at midnight yeah. and warned, warned me of a bombing. And I just became yeah. irrationally yeah. terrified. Now I find him to be an astute political observer. I yes. actually, I can, I can tell you why I think Sam Donaldson is additionally crazy. If I'm correct, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Sam Donaldson had eyebrows yeah, in which oh, yeah. a part yeah. of the eyebrow, there's like a tuft of hair that goes up, which looks like a devil's horn. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember that he always had like devil's horns in his eyebrows, which very made him look so. a little crazier. Yeah, he. I mean, he definitely was a terrifying looking person. The only other thing that I can think of that maybe is like a normal fear to have was even though I wasn't afraid of like unsolved mysteries or like you know uh, what was the Fox show, with, a current affair, yeah, current, not a current yeah. affair, the other mm-hmm. one. Hard copy. copy. Yeah, whatever those. Uh, I was afraid uh, yeah, of whatever. hard copy. Uh, <laughs> America's Most Wanted. I loved America's Most Wanted. That's oh, what I'm yeah, trying to think of. Yeah, um, right, right. But it was, I was afraid, even though I always felt like I could find the killer or if I got kidnapped, I would be able to like talk my way out of right. it because I was that right. talented and smart. Um, but I was terrified of mugshots. 
Oh, yes. wow. Mugshots, I couldn't, because the idea of someone being able to successfully yes. draw someone of evil nature, that terrified me. Wait, oh mugshots or court drawings? Well, mugshots and court drawings. Sorry, I confused the two, but yes. Oh, interesting. That reminds me. I used to go to the post office with my mom. Yes. The post office had... Most wanted one? Wanted pictures. Yeah. I would flip through because they would always distinguish between armed and dangerous and armed and extremely dangerous. Uh Uh-huh. And... Uh, there was one guy who looked like my friend's dad who had like a thick like handlebar mustache as is mm-hmm. and it freaked me out I, I, st- I could still pick that guy from that like the, the the criminal out of a lineup have I shared before about my solving an unsolved mystery I feel oh, like yes. I maybe have yeah you've always yeah, yeah. TMI'd about that Alan yeah, I don't know if I have though on this podcast I think you oh I yeah think you, you have We'll let the listeners. We'll let the listeners say it. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think I I think so. I can also. I was in terms of famous people. I was afraid of, um, terrified, petrified of Dom DeLuise. (laughs) Petrified of him. Why? I I don't know, but he used to like. I would. I would like literally like tremble after seeing him. And then by nature, of course, same thing with Paul Prudhomme because they look the same. And then. Um, I was terrified of any any time I would catch even a glimpse of the of the cassette box to fairy tale theater. Mm. That What's was that. A, that was I don't know that, that is. It was like a re, re it was a um uh, a, a telling of fairy tales with celebrities, but it was okay. shot in a sort of green, oh, creepy way. And I think Shelley I watched Duvall that. Was in one. Yes, I watched that at <laughs> at Michael's. Michael, like over the over the holidays, Michael's family watched it. I remember. Oh, that. Yeah, I would literally yeah. walk around the video store like this, so I didn't have to. I'm put holding my hand over my eyes, so I didn't have to see the box. Yes, <laughs> I would do that. I would do that too. That's oh my so god, funny. Wait, Elliot, was, Elliot, let's let's rush through because I want to get a couple more of these gems. You oh, were afraid, sure. of course. You were afraid of sex porn. I was terrified Howard of sex. <laughs> I was terrified of Howard Stern. I was yeah. I was terrified of Knight Rider, the show, and the music. Being up late. Terrified of being up late of why? What I don't know. I just thought it was like that's bad. That's I was bad. Afraid of bad <laughs> See, again, using scary to be like breaking the rules, like no, scary as it all. I was scared. Kid, I don't know. It's as a kid. It's like I had a similar thing where I had this fear that if I, what if I couldn't fall asleep, and. What if I was up so late that the nighttime would end and I never fell asleep? Which, oh of course, isn't even that big of a I deal. I understand that, yeah. <laughs> but I was, and I would always ask my parents, is the nighttime almost over? Oh Every my time. Like I'd go to bed cute. at like 8, and I'd be like, is the nighttime almost over? And they're like, you're fine. Chill I out. Think, really I think cute. one of the reasons, which might be the difference between us, like you have an older brother, Brent, but I don't think you guys had, like I my, my brothers were like, assholes and really combative and like whatever. So if I ever yeah. said I was afraid of something, it would immediately be squashed. Like, it right, Im- so, Oh, sorry. No, that's it. Well, this is one of my favorite, one of my favorite things my brother ever did, which is introduce logic into kind of these irrational fears. And we just moved into our new house. He was a senior in high school and I was like, think in seventh grade. So towards, sort of towards the end of being kind of irrationally afraid. We of moved things. in seventh grade too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll quit bragging. But, um, <laughs> 
I remember we were home alone. My parents were out and uh, we were watching TV and I was afraid to go upstairs because it was like a new house and this whole thing. And he was like, what are you afraid of? And I was like, well, I'm just afraid that there's like someone up there that like wants to hurt us. And he was like, if someone was in the house, they would have already killed us. Go upstairs. And I remember he put put it together for you. I remember being like, you know what? That's actually reasonable logic. Why would the person wait to kill me? They would have already come down. First of all, why would they break up, break in upstairs? But you know, that's how I was too. I mean, I was like, that's why I slept on the bottom bunk because I knew that if a murderer came in, they would murder my little brother on the top bunk first because murderers are usually men, (laughs) tall, going to get him first. I get out of there real quick. You know what I mean? I would never have even let anybody get that far with the description before throwing, without throwing up. (laughs) I was, I can't just list through. I was also, I was, Terrified of quote bad kids, firecrackers, Ouija boards, root, yeah. canal. root canal. I was t- Gary Shandling scared the shit out of me. Jim Varney <laughs> fucking scared me. And honestly, marshmallows? nothing. Marshmallows absolutely no. Like, now, sent a chill down my. Now we're just getting ridiculous. Very, no, when I was very little, if something had marshmallows in it, I would. If I knew about marshmallows or thought about marshmallows, it would scare the shit out of me. I don't know why. But I was petrified of them. I think, we should, I think we should just end on Elliot's irrational fear of marshmallows. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with that. That probably ca- caps it all, I guess. What would your aunt say? Brent, what would your aunt Rowan say about something she heard on today's podcast? Dr. Fauci used to be good looking. I don't think he's ever looked any better than today, though. <laughs> My oh. aunt Joanne would say, you were afraid of marshmallows, but you weren't afraid of Malamaws. <laughs> How about Aunt Anne? My Aunt Anne also would have a boner for Dr. Fauci. Um, and she would say, you know, I, I just, him knowing he likes the homosexuals, it just makes him so much more attractive. And I just, I, I want to make him a manicotti. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she, would, she, would, she would have a boner over Fauci for sure. She would. He's a good, yeah. He seems like a good egg. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. I'm Elliot Glazer. I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott.